0: Genesis chapter 34, you're, you're going to find that every once in a while in your Bibles, there's a chapter that you, you stumble upon it and you go, wow, that's kind of crazy. Uh, we have one of those tonight. Genesis chapter 34, probably in the subtitles that are normally put into most English translations of the Bible, you might have something like the Dinah incident or you know, the, the rape of Dinah, there's this tragic story that really shows us the actual price of backsliding. What it actually costs you when you delay, when God has spoken and you choose not to listen and you set up your family in a place that they're not supposed to be. And I think I want to begin tonight instead of by reading our passage, but which we'll do in a moment, but really by focusing in on a passage from the book of Hebrews in chapter 12. You see, the truth is God doesn't allow sin to go unpunished. Now, sometimes he chooses to chasten us very, very, very lightly. Sometimes that chastening may be private to you, maybe in your mind, or he's just Speaking to you in a corrective way. But the truth of the matter is, God loves us too much to leave us the way we are. And we certainly see that here in Genesis 34. Before we pray, I want to read from Hebrews chapter 12. Pick up in verse 3 and just uh, five, six verses here. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you be weary and discouraged in your souls. For you have not resisted the bloodshed striving against sin. In other words, the picture here in the book of Hebrews is we can always do more to strive against sin. It's kind of a continuation really of the message from this morning. We we are supposed to be victorious over those things in our lives that are not from the Lord. And we can almost always do better to that end. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. And so what follows here picking up uh, in the latter portion here of verse five in the book of Hebrews is actually from Proverbs chapter three. Solomon writing to his son, And he's giving them some instruction and wisdom. He says, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Sometimes we're in such a hurry to get out of the consequences of things we've gotten ourselves into that we don't let God do what God needs to do to keep us from ever getting to that place again. And the consequence of that is repetition very often of those same things. We get into yet another relationship. We, we end up in some other habits. We, we reformulate the old ways and repackage them and attempt to clean them up, so to speak. Verse 6. For whom the Lord loves... He chastens and scourges every son who he receives. And the picture here is is God loves you too much to leave you the way you are. He's not going to let us go off the tracks. He's not going to let us wander someplace that we shouldn't be without giving us a good old-fashioned whooping if we need it. Because he loves us, not because he's mad. You see, very often as parents, we respond to things that our children do because we're angry that they chose that path. We're mad about it. It's like, how, how, I raised you better than that. What are you doing? And so our response sometimes as human beings is to just simply get mad. But God in his anger is anger at sin, but he can still fully love his children While dealing with the issues in our lives. Verse 7, Hebrews chapter 12, for if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons, sons or daughters, children, as his kids. In other words, it's a good thing, it's a sign of care. The the Lord, when he chastens us, is actually reminding us, look, I love you as my children. I'm not going to let you do this because to do nothing about it is to leave you in harm's way. And so he chastens us. He, He allows that thing to come into our lives, which we do not want, but he knows is the very best deterrent that we could possibly face because we'll get the message Anybody ever gotten the message greater by chastening than by, you know, just some kind, gentle words? You know, we live in a day and time where it's an anathema for us to apply the the rod of knowledge to the seed of wisdom on our children. But, you know, we, we, we really can't do that anymore unless we want to go to jail. But there was a time when it was it was perceived... I I went to school in the days when when you went into the principal's office, there on the wall was the assortment of paddles. And you could pick which one you wanted, you know, it's like, oh, that one looks like it won't hurt too bad. And most young men would always pick the ones with the holes in them. Bad idea. Those hurt a lot worse than the flat ones, (laughs) You see, sometimes we would try and get out of it by picking our own, in essence, punishment. And God saying, no, I love you too much. I'll handle that. I'll give you what you need. I won't give you more than you need. I'll take care of it. For what son is there from a father that he does not chasten? him? They're just things that need to be corrected. And if you're here tonight and you've never been corrected by the Lord, this passage is actually for you. You have to actually kind of consider what the inference is here. And that is if God's not chastening you, if you're making mistakes and the Lord doesn't do anything about it, you might want to check and see if you have a genuine relationship with the Lord. Because if he loves you and you go down the wrong road, you can be pretty sure he's going to use all means necessary to put you back on the path. And sometimes it's going to hurt. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, if you're one of God's kids, everyone's gotten a whooping. You know, some kids are correctable with the word. Some kids are correctable with action. Some kids need a good old-fashioned paddling. Then you're illegitimate and not sons. You're not God's kid. When you can repeatedly get away with what you are not supposed to be doing, you're supposed to ask a question. Our story tonight begins with Dinah, who went out to see the daughters of the land. Dinah should have never, ever been in the land to begin with. This is on Jacob. And the children of Israel are gonna pay a price that is going to last to this day because of this incident. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you chasten us whom you love. Lord, you do it measured according to your grace. You're never too harsh. You're never too lenient. Lord, you're good at applying pressure in our lives to get the proper result. And so, Lord, we pray that we'd learn to listen. And most importantly, we pray that we'd learn to not be in that state that we're going to get chastened in the first place, to hear your voice before the chastening is necessary. But, Lord, help us to not despise it and to learn from it when it happens, and to make sure we move our tent. Away from the world. We bless you. We praise you. We give you tonight, Lord, speak through your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alfred Eddersheim, in his seminal work on the life and times of Jesus, the Messiah, has several portions of that book, which are really kind of the historical setting of the time. And while it's very, very difficult for us to imagine what it was like, the fact of the matter is, is during that period of time, the marriageable age for a young woman was some, someplace between the ages of about 12 and 14. And let me give you a little insight into that. The average life expectancy was about 35. So at 14 years old, you're pressing halfway through your life. It'd be the equivalent of us getting married at 40. Um, And so when you look at this, I think it's important that you don't apply too much of the pedophile mind to this story, though it is very wicked what is done. It was not the same setting during this day and time and was not very far out of the norm. It was absolutely sin. It was absolutely wrong. It was absolutely vile. But it was not pedophilia. This was considered fairly normal behavior. A young girl that's in her teen years would have absolutely been of marriageable age. And there was not the restraint that there is today. And so, six or seven years before, uh, Jacob had been between Sukkoth and this place called Shechem. And Dinah, born in the same year as Joseph, uh, this was his 17th year, it's highly likely that, that Dinah was someplace between 12 and 16 years old when this happens. And so she's a young girl, she is of marriageable age, but why is she there in the first place? Why is she living next door to a bunch of heathens, why, why is she in harm's way, so to speak? Why is it that when God gives us direction, we sometimes delay? Why is it when we know what the Lord wants, sometimes we only go halfway, we don't get all the way there? This is the danger of delay. This is really the danger or the price, if you will, of backsliding. Kind Christians today ignore the warning signs, as we were talking this morning. Very often, I, I hear people say, Why? Well, I, I knew that's what the Bible said, but I thought it didn't apply to me. I thought I somehow was going to escape the consequences that would come upon my head if I did exactly what the Lord told me not to do. And it's very often, yes, the Lord certainly uses the word first, but many times you are that voice in other people's lives. You're able to speak into them as a brother, as a sister. Uh, as someone who knows him, as friends, as family, I have the privilege of doing that as a pastor. I get to say, you know, here's the issue. Please do not stop at Shechem. You're supposed to be in Bethel. You're supposed to be in the house of God. You are not supposed to be living in a booth. You're not supposed to be in a tent. You're supposed to be where you can set up a proper altar. You're supposed to be where the Lord wants you. Please don't settle for less than that. And where I often get into this conversation is in premarital counseling. And here's how it usually goes. This is my boyfriend, so-and-so, and and he's a pre-Christian. And I'll usually, my my ears perk up. They don't perk up very far, but they perk up. And I will say something like this, what exactly do you mean by pre-Christian? Because where I come from, that means he's not saved, but you wish he was. Well, well, yeah, he's been to church. And I'll say, Well, what church? Well, he doesn't like coming here because you teach the Bible. You starting to get the picture? And, and I'll ask you, See, are, are you sure this is the direction you want to go? Because it sounds like you're stopping at Shechem. It sounds like you want to dwell in a booth. Because the first thing you ought to concern yourself with. Is are you going to be unequally yoked if this goes where you think it's going to go? Because there is no guarantee that that man is going to become a believer ever. You want that settled before you say I do. Not hoping that it happens after you say I do. I'll share a passage of scripture from 2 Corinthians a little bit later to this regard. This is but one example of the ways that we kind of end up in the same place in our lives as the setting of this chapter. Verse 1, Genesis 34 And now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she'd born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. That's another way of saying she went to party with the girls in town. She was going to go check out what was the haps in the village. See what the other peeps were doing. She saw the girls, they were kind of having fun. Apparently things were a little better on the other side of the hill because they knew how to party hardy. And she went to see the daughters of the land. the inference is here, these are the heathen neighbors that they shouldn't have been camped next to. And while I'm not suggesting for a moment that you're not going to have people who don't know the Lord that live around you, but it's a different thing when God tells you very directly, Jacob, I want your family living in the house of God. I want your family to be in Bethel. And you decide because the grass is greener and the flocks are bigger and the water seems to be more prevalent that you're going to stop along the way and say, well, I'll take what the world has to offer right now. Thank you very much. It was a very dangerous decision. It does not always work out so negatively as this. But when the Lord speaks, word to the wise, do what he tells you to do. And keep going all the way to where he wants you to go. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and he lay with her and he violated her. He raped her. Now we're not told specifically that this was some violent act. We don't know if Dinah was complicit. We have zero idea whether this was consensual or not. But the fact of the matter is scripture records this as a violation. She shouldn't have been there in the first place. Now, I want you to notice what happens because I have heard the story hundreds of times. Well, I didn't think I'd end up in bed with him, I didn't think I'd end up in bed with her, but it kind of sort of happened. And then comes the story I think we're in love. When in fact, all it is is lust, it's sexual attraction. And their relationship, what there is of it, is based on nothing but physical attraction. And his soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, get me this young woman as my wife. Now again, we don't understand culturally some Areas of of our world still practice the arranged marriage situation. This was one of those cultures, so it was actually culturally acceptable for a young man to go, there's a girl in that village, and I want her. Dad, go get her for me. So again, it helps to keep it in its cultural context. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, and I want you to just see how cheesy Jacob can be after being renamed Israel. And now his sons were with his livestock in the field, and so Jacob held his peace until they came. In other words, he was a chicken. He <laughs> said, I don't have my boys to back me up right now. They're out with the cows, and the cows are pretty much more important than my daughter Dinah. And then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done this disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. It's pretty bad when the sons have a better sense of moral obligation than the father. But Hamor spoke to them, saying, "The soul of my son Shikem longs for your daughter. Please give her to to him as a wife, and make marriages with us. Come on, we can make this right. We can compromise a little bit here. I mean, you know, yeah, it didn't quite go down the way we thought it should, but you know, let's make it okay. Can I tell you something?" There is no way to sanctify sin. You've got to go back to the beginning and start over and unwrap this package and put the parts back where they belong and say, let's talk to the Lord before we go any further. Sin added to sin just makes more sin. A bad arrangement Added to one bad arrangement will make yet another bad arrangement. That's the way it always goes down. You can make marriages with us and give your daughters to us and take your daughters to yourselves. You realize what he's saying. He's saying, Look, I know we're carnal heathens, but we got some hot chicks. You got some hot chicks, some nice guys. So let's kind of get, get together a little bit here. Let's throw a little bit of a party. So you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Now remember, the Canaanites are the powerful inhabitants of the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They include a whole number of tribes, the Moabites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, those in Gad, the Philistines. They're already there. They're a powerful group together. They didn't have a central ruling body. The largest group was those of the Danites that were in the north. The Canaanite city of Dan stands to this day. And so here they're saying, look, look at the land around you. Now to put this into its context visually for you, where they are is in Shechem, Sakoth which is modern-day Nablus. It's located in the West Bank. It's up on a mountain ridge between two peaks. Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal on the two sides. There's a spring there. Abraham had dwelled there in the past. And when you stood in that valley, you're looking out. You're down into the plains of Jezreel. If you look the right direction, you can see down to the Jordan Valley. It's a pretty pleasant place to stay. But it was carnal and it didn't honor God. It looked good, but it wasn't what God had for him. And in staying where we are not supposed to be and accepting what the world offers, we always put ourselves in harm's way. And again, it's not that God is going to chasten you to the uttermost. But you're going to suffer consequences of not listening to the Lord. And if you continue to do it, the circumstances seem to get worse throughout the Bible. God starts out with Pharaoh. He's just kind of swatting away flies, right? It's like, man, I hate these flies. It ends with the death of the firstborn. God ramps up the severity each time. He he starts by trying to get our attention by like, this is kind of irritating. This is devastating. This is debilitating. And this is going to kill you. Dwell and trade and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said said to his father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. And so he's now going to, dad's talked and now the son's going to talk. It's like, look, I want to prove myself to you. Dads, men, the first question you ask every prospective boyfriend that your daughter brings home is, do you know Jesus? If the answer to that is no, get out the shotgun. So you can come back, but we're doing target practice. No, you got to square that part away. That's the most important question. It is not, do you have a car? It's not, do you have a house? It's not, do you have money? It's, do you know Jesus? Because if the answer to that question is no, and your daughter knows the Lord, you are setting her up for failure because now you have people with two masters and they are going to become one and they cannot walk together unless they be agreed and it might be all rosy at the beginning but them roses got thorns and pretty soon you're going to have mostly thorns and no rose petals Whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to you what you say to me. But give me the young woman as a wife. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, and spoke deceitfully. (laughs) Well, duh, because they're not walking with the Lord. I was like, wow, the light bulb went on. Because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. And they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. And again, remember, this sounds strange to us, but that was the difference between someone who believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and someone who was a heathen. And so we can kind of equate this in a spiritual sense. That's a believer and an unbeliever you got people who, are, who have, are destined to walk with the Lord and know God as much as anyone could know at that point in time and those who care not about the things of God. We can't do it. Can't give her to one who's uncircumcised for that would be a reproach to us and actually it would be a reproach to God, wouldn't it? But on this condition, we will consent to you. And here's one of those interesting things. You can't make somebody a believer by doing something to the outside. It is an internal issue when one believes in one's heart that Jesus Christ is God's son and that God raised him from the dead, one becomes saved. It has nothing to do with the outside. And circumcision was an outward sign to a people. And you could fake that all day long. It was just an operation. It was a physical operation that altered them, of course. But that couldn't change their hearts. Couldn't make them believers. It had no capacity to change what was on the inside. It only changed what was on the outside. We'll consent to you if you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one people. You cannot become one people with people who don't know the Lord. It always always leads to problems. And I'm not saying you can't work for somebody that doesn't know the Lord, though that obviously has its own set of challenges. But when you were talking about the deepest relationships that we have on this earth, husband and wife and family, when you intermix believers and unbelievers, it always causes problems. Some of those problems are going to be lighter than others. And some people fare better in that circumstance than others. But it always causes problems. Because I'm trying to be led by the Spirit as someone who loves the Lord... And someone who does not know the Lord is not only not led by the Spirit, they're led by the flesh, and the flesh and the Spirit, Scripture says, war against each other. They're actually at odds. They're, they're doing battle, aren't they? So if you bring a non-Christian into a Christian situation, you're either going to have to compromise or you're going to have to act like an unbeliever. That's the only way it can possibly go down. What do they do? They compromise and they act like unbelievers. And that also happens. So look, well, you know, we can become one people. Just have the operation. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. They're using her for money. Notice what they promised. See all the land? It's yours. Crops, yours. Cows, yours. Goats, sheep, all yours. We just want Dinah. It's awful. Their words pleased Hamor and him, Yeah, I'm guessing. Hamor's son. And so the young man did not delay to do the thing. Because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. That's another way to say he was... She was hot. She was a fine-looking young lady. So, yeah, we're delighting in that. Now, he was more honorable than all of his household of his father. There was a little bit of good in him. That little bit of good is not going to outweigh the fact he doesn't know the true and the living God. This is going to go down the way that they think it's going to go down. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, these men are at peace with us, and therefore let them dwell in the land and trade for it. For indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives and let us give our daughters to them. The only condition will be the men will consent to dwell with us and be one people if every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. They're trading something on the outside for that which can only be done on the inside. It is the renewing of the mind. It's the transformation of the heart. It is having heart surgery, that heart of stone turned into a heart of flesh. It's not the outward, it's the inward. It's always been that way. Will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? You see where they're going with this. Oh, we're willing to we're willing to say anything. You're talking about circumcision. So what? We're going to get your cows and your girls. We're getting your camels. We're getting your fields. Sure, we'll do that. Who cares? And this is exactly how the world reacts with us who believe in the Lord. They're willing to say anything, willing to do anything, willing to compromise in any way, shape, or form if they have the opportunity to get at us. And we can't do it. Only let us consent to them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city, indeed he did Hamor and Shechem his son, And every male was circumcised and all who went out of the gate of his city. And now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain. It's almost a humorous situation now. You see what happens? See what a little compromise does? That compromise leads to another compromise. That backsliding leads to more backsliding. That not listening to the Lord leads to some more backsliding. Sliding and not listening to the Lord. Look at it. When they were in pain that the two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took a sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. Well, the reason they came boldly is all the males were incapacitated. They were in pain. And so they seized an opportunity to try and get vengeance. Now they're going to act holy. They're going to say this is righteous anger. And they killed Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. And the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. And they took their sheep and their oxen and their donkeys, what was in the city, what was in the field, and all of their wealth... Think that pleased the Lord, that this deep wrong, and again, make no mistake, Dinah being raped and defiled was a horrific thing, but they just murdered all the male inhabitants of the entire city, aren't about to steal everything that they have because of that. You see what a little compromise will do? Doesn't make it right. Doesn't settle the score. Actually, because now they have God upset with them, and their little ones and their wives they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in their houses. And then Jacob said to Simeon, Levi, Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me, making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land. What a hideous thing when the church becomes obnoxious to the inhabitants of the land because we act more like heathens than the heathens do. And that's exactly what's happening here. They go so far off track that now they're acting worse than the people that defiled their sister. They've gone way overboard that anger pent up inside of them, and it's destroying them from the inside. And now there are witnesses ruined among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, you should treat our sister like a harlot. You see, when you look at this story and you review Jacob's life, God commanded that Jacob return to Bethel. And so if you look at these two points on the map, they're only about 60 miles apart. Jacob is almost there. If he went kind of on a forced march, he could have been in in Hebron in less than a week. He could have marched his whole family and all of his flocks and been right where God wanted him to be. But instead, he decided to live in a booth, in a hut made out of sticks instead of building the home that God wanted for him. And there's a picture when we compromise with the world, we often end up living in the temporary house the world wants for us instead of the mansion the Lord has for us. And I mean that in a spiritual sense when we don't have what God wants for us in our lives, we end up settling. We end up being okay with just living in sticks, a booth. This is a sukkah or a, or, or a, a booth in the t- Feast of Tabernacles. The picture is the sukkah, the, the, the booth that is made, that goes out on one's rooftop or maybe beside one's house, It was a reminder of the temporary dwelling place of the Jewish people when they fled from Pharaoh. They had nothing and they lived in a tent. But once you've been delivered, you're not supposed to live in a tent. Once you've been brought into the promised land, you're supposed to live in God's house. You're not supposed to settle for a house of sticks. Basically, he set up, Jacob sets up, he settles down in the land that he was not supposed to be in. And you just can't ever compromise enough with the world. The world will always want more. The world will demand more. It will take more. That's also obvious from this passage that, that Jacob was in absolutely zero hurry to try and get where he was supposed to go. He was very happy in essence, dwelling in this land that he wasn't supposed to be in. And so this is the tragic cost of delay. And there's some things that I think we can learn from this. And, and we've already looked at this, but this is a truth that is also found in our story we looked at last time in the life of Sam, in Saul, that, as Samuel speaks to him. Because Saul was all about trying to make it up after bad things happened. He would mess up and he would substitute, if you will, service for devotion to God. And let me just share with you, God desires for us to be obedient more than he desires for us to sacrifice. He wants us to listen and obey and do. In other words, he does not want to sacrifice. He wants us to not serve him, but he wants us to actually be devoted to him. Actually, love him and serve him with a whole heart, and so in First Samuel chapter fifteen, verse twenty-two, it says, and so Samuel said, and he's speaking about King Saul, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? In other words, he's saying, look, does the Lord really want you to bring him gold and? frankincense and myrrh and doves and cattle and oxen and loaves of bread. Does he really need that stuff? Or is he actually out after something a little bit deeper than that? And the answer is he is after something deeper than that. And so Samuel says about King Saul, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than that of the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. It's as someone drugged you. That word that's translated there in the New Testament is translated pharmacia. It's as if you're on drugs. That's what sin does. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because you've rejected the word of the Lord He has also rejected you from becoming king. You see, what God wants is our hearts. He doesn't care if you're an unbeliever that's circumcised, so to speak. He's not looking at the outside. He sees the inside. And so we see in this passage that disobedience always brings chastening from the Lord. Because he loves us, he's not going to leave us in that state to where we're messing up all the time. I'll show you four things as we wrap this up. Number one that I see in this story is carelessness can cost you. It can be very costly to be inattentive to the voice of the Lord. Now sometimes we, we look at actions of disobedience as being far more severe than inattention. But I can tell you from a personal perspective when I talk to people, inattention is almost always the beginning of the action it's like you you start just exactly as the book of hebrews says with drifting away from god in chapter two and before you know it that becomes active disobedience drifting leads to active disobedience and so what you have in hebrews 2 moves to hebrews 4 and hebrews 6 and before you know it you're not only not paying attention to what the Lord's saying, you're doing exactly the opposite of what the Lord tells you to do. It goes from passive to active. And so God is encouraging us here to don't be careless about your walk with the Lord. Jacob's carrying with his pay, this pagan neighborhood, he's deliberately endangering his family. And how many of us get these same types of things because the grass looks greener in pagan land? I don't know if that's a real place. I just made it up. The land is cheaper. The jobs pay more maybe. But in the end, they're parked next door to Shechem and Sakah. And their family's in danger. They're, they're living someplace they're not supposed to live. And metaphorically speaking, that may not be a place. It might be a lifestyle. It, 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 could, it could be a job. It could be a relationship with someone. When you park your tent next door to the world, and your view is the world, you can kind of count on being influenced by the world. That's why while it's good to have non-Christian friends that you keep at a distance to some degree so that you can minister to them, you you don't want to move into that situation so far that you're dwelling in their house. You want them coming to your house. You want them knowing what God's house looks like. And we can see this in, in absolute H.D., 4K HD, in fact. Because not once is the name of the Lord mentioned in this chapter. Not once. There's no evidence that God was even considered. It's just like, well, we'll we'll do this and we'll do that. and We'll do this and we'll do that. And if you do this, we'll do that. And as long as we can have peace with you, it's all good. You don't want peace with the world at that cost. Because it costs too much. We saw the same thing and and we'll see it additionally as we journey the rest of the way through Genesis. But you, you saw it in the life of Abraham when he was in Egypt. Lot when he was in Sodom. Isaac when he was at Gerar. You're going to see it with Samson when he's at Philistia. You're going to see it with Elimelech and Naomi and Moab. You're going to see Peter. We've already seen this passage recently in the courtyard with that little girl. He was parked next to a campfire trying to make nice with the world, saying, I don't know Jesus. What are you talking about? Jesus. That's what happens when you compromise. It's exactly what happens when you're careless about your walk with the Lord. The second thing, disobedience very often leads to defilement. You don't intend to get dirty in the world. You don't intend to mess up. You're not setting out to disobey the Lord. But in that carelessness, that disobedience to the actual voice of the Lord who's telling you to go all the way to God's house telling you to be fully committed to the Lord, you stop halfway or three quarters of the way or 90% there, and you kind of pitch your tent facing back towards the world. And it's like our escape plan. It's like, well, if it doesn't work out, this Christian thing doesn't quite work out, I can always go back to the world. You know, if, if this situation I'm in doesn't get a little better pretty soon, I'm thinking the world's looking pretty good. And so... Ultimately, you end up defiled because you're being disobedient. You get way dirtier than you ever thought you would ever get. And you wake up and and you look at that situation, you go, Lord, how did I get here? This is where I want to speak to you for a moment in this area of of pre-believers, you know someone you're a parent and your kids are dating non-christian kids and they're in that process of trying to figure out what it looks like for them going forward in marriage or maybe you're here tonight i want you to turn to second corinthians chapter six push and swipe turn the page whatever you need to do You see, Jacob's actions here bore witness to the fact that he didn't care about God's standards as much as he cared about money or beauty or circumstances in his life that he could go, man, I'm living high. Verse 11, 2 Corinthians 6, and we'll get here in our study on Thursday nights. O Corinthians We've spoken openly to you, and our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us. In other words, we're not trying to level some guilt trip on you. We're not trying to bind you up with some new law, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, return for the same, and you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Don't be so open-minded that ultimately you compromise in the area of belief. Because that's the one area of life that we as, as the church cannot compromise in. And he leaves no door open for some other interpretation. He's saying, look, don't do it. Don't be joined together. And the picture is the yoke on an oxen. It's a double yoke set up. And if you ever have the opportunity to actually see a real yoke for oxen, the two holes that are in that yoke are always a different size. And there's a reason for that. Because it was actually fitted for two, exactly two, oxen. And so the neck yoke, the top yoke, is made to go over the necks of two very specific oxen. And so the example that the Apostle Paul is is using is, look, there is a yoke that God's designed for you, and it's not to be yoked together to an unbeliever. There should be two believers pulling the same direction. Because if you have two heads, and one of them is a believer and one of them is not, guess how many directions they're going to try and go? Two if you're trying to become one flesh, if you want in marriage to be what God wants for you, which is the two became one, then you can't have two heads. You've got to have one head. That head is Jesus. And so he says, look, you, you can't be yoked together with unbelievers. And then he, in case you don't get it, because some people say, well, you know, I don't care about cows. You know, I mean, that's, that's back then. Of course you know there's unbelieving cows and believing cows and of course you don't want an unbelieving cow in your herd so get rid of them for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness what communion has light with darkness what accord has christ with the devil with belial or what part has a believer with an unbeliever for what agreement has the temple of god with idols do you get it He's leaving no stone unturned here. He's actually saying to us, it's like, look, don't do this. For you are the temple of the living God, exactly as God has said there in Jeremiah 32. I dwell among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And therefore, quoting from Isaiah chapter 52, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what, that which is unclean and I will receive you. And if that's not enough, he takes him back to another book in 2 Samuel, in chapter 7. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. He's saying, look, you don't have any business as a believer being linked together with the devil. Now, that may seem harsh to you. But the context here is very clear. If you're a believer in the most intimate relationships of life, you cannot compromise and say, well, we'll just, you know, we'll just get along. You have to take a stand for righteousness. That's exactly what Jacob should have done. He says that I don't care about the fields. I don't care about the money. I don't care about the livestock. I couldn't care less that your girls are cute, my sons are handsome, they might make some nice babies. I don't care about any of that. What I care about is that I serve the true and the living God with a whole heart. And I can't do that if I'm compromising everything I believe. So you can see how that disobedience led ultimately to them being defiled. And deception, then the third thing, always leads to drama in our lives. When you seek to deceive, when you seek seek to not do what God's asked you to do... Uh, And we won't read it tonight. But if you read Leviticus chapter 18, I mean, there's a there's a pretty clear understanding there uh, of what God wanted from them, Uh, and they they said no to that. They said, you know, we're we're not going to do that. We're not going to live our lives that way. I mean, come on, we're we're here in this beautiful place. They got a lot to offer. That's what the world always does. The world hands out a bunch of stuff and says, "Look what we can give you." Let me give you a case in point. His name is Jesus. What happened to Jesus when he was led by the Holy Spirit to the mountaintop to be tempted? What areas of life did Satan try and tempt Jesus in? Well, you know, I know you're hungry. I, I you know, it's been a while. It's been forty days. There's some rocks right there. Why don't you command them to be turned into bread? What did Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He says, you better believe I'm hungry right now, but I'd rather eat those rocks than deny my God. He takes him out on the precipice. He says, Look, it's the kingdoms of the world. If you'll just bow down and worship me, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him alone shall you serve. He <laughs> said, I'm not serving you, and you can't give me this because this ain't yours. It belongs to my Father. And so the picture here is the devil tries to deceive us. And if we buy the deception, we are leading ourselves and our families to drama. You'll you'll end up in that space to where it's like, man, I never thought this would get here. And you can see it in what happens to these boys. These young men. By the time we get to the New Testament times, We're supposed to put away lying there in Ephesians 4. We're not supposed to do anything but speak the truth to one another and they're being deceptive. And finally that deception leads them, oh cool, they're going to be circumcised. They're going to be out of commission for a few days. We'll go kill them. You see how that deception led them to a dramatic situation that's going to formulate a price on their heads. That's why Romans 12 says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for the good things in the sight of all men, and as much as is possible with you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but you give place for the Lord, for vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You see, they weren't having any of that. So we're going to take care of this ourselves. And so that deception led to this drama. And finally, the fourth thing this godless vengeance is villainous. It's worse. And again, both were bad, but I'm pretty sure the slaughtering of an entire settlement of people to where they're all dead and they've stolen everything in every home is worse than the one girl who was raped. As bad as that was, this is worse. And anybody that can't see that, you need to take another look at it. One was bad, one was infinitely worse. You see, what happened was, when you take God out of the equation and you take matters into your own hands, and you start to act according to your own flesh, and you fulfill the dictates of your flesh, you have an almost unlimited capacity to sin. So we pack up our families and we say, look, you know what? Maybe it's not gonna be quite as profitable living here, um, but we're going to Bethel. Maybe it's not gonna be what everyone else has, but we're gonna walk with the Lord. The picture here is almost striking. It kind of shocks you into exactly the difference between someone who truly loves the Lord and wants to please the Lord and someone who cares more about their belly than they do about honoring God. Cares more about the home that they have than honoring the Lord. And by the way, you can have both. God's so good that he gives us nice homes and cars and all kinds of wonderful things. So this is not a, hey, get rid of all your stuff message. This is if you have to sell your soul to get the stuff, that's what Jesus said, don't do. He said, what profit is it to a man if he were to gain the whole world and lose his witness? Lose his his soul. Lose, Lose his standing before God, which puts him in jeopardy before men. Because at the end of the day, when you get to heaven, you know what's not going to happen? Nobody's going to ask you if you pleased me or not. I know that's shocking to you. But when you get to heaven, it's going to be one question. The entrance exam to heaven is really, really easy. Did you believe on my son Jesus? Yes, welcome home. It's not gonna be how rich were you or where did you live or did you have this car or that car? Did you leave an inheritance to your kids? All those things, by the way, could be good. It's gonna be what did you do for the king and for the kingdom? How obedient were you with with your life? What did you do with your family? How did you serve the Lord while you were here? You're gonna give an account for those things. The tragic result of this story is a blown witness. You see, backsliding always leads to a blown witness. Why would anyone believe us about the words of life if they can't believe us about the way we live our temporal lives? Why, why would somebody even stop to ask us, well, what's different about you when it's pretty obvious nothing's different? And so in this situation, Jacob, you know, it was good that he built an altar. It was good that he was trying to worship the true and the living God. It was good to have that witness before the pagan neighbors, but all that was blown out the window. Every bit of that wishing that he had a great reputation in the community was gone the moment his sons went out and murdered everybody. And while that seems extreme to you, that's the way the world looks at the church. The world looks at the church and says, why would I believe a word you say? Because the people that represent you do worse things than the worst heathens I know. That's why these travesties of pastors that that buy $55 million personal jets, they're going to be answering to God for that. Because it blows their witness before the Lord, because you can't be temperate and moderate in all things and own a jet that's only owned by movie stars and professional athletes. That's not the life of a pastor. The same is true when you say that you love the Lord and serve the Lord in your own life, and then your life does not bear witness to it. When you tell the same jokes that everybody else tells, when you live your life according to the dictates of your flesh, when you walk in this world according to the dictates of the world, you're telling the world that your relationship with Jesus is not only not primary, it may not even matter at all to you. And so your witness or mine can be blown that way. That's why what we do matters. How we live our lives in this world matters. matters. And had Jacob and his family been at Bethel, where they were supposed to be, where they belonged, this tragedy would have never occurred. They would have been able to minister to those people that they instead murdered. They could have still gone back and traded with them, but they could have traded with them in strength from Bethel. Instead, Not only did they blow their witness, there was no way in the world. Can you imagine? Oh, yeah, well, I'd like to share uh, about the true and the living God with you. I know that my brothers murdered your family. Can we just kind of overlook that? I tell you something, the the world does not see that the way the Lord sees it. (laughs) The world says, why would I listen to you? Get out of my face before I finish off. There's going to be some heartaches and there's going to be joy. That's the good part. The God of Jacob is going to prove himself faithful through the whole book, all the way to the end. But when God calls you, go. When God says do, do it. And do it without delay. Amen? We just stand and we'll pray together? Father, this story, this tidbit of history about your chosen people, Lord Israel, is a sad commentary, Lord, on where we could be if we choose to not listen. Lord, if we delay, if we deceive, if we dismiss your truth, we can find ourselves in disaster. And so, God, pray that for each one of us tonight, we'd we'd learn the lesson from this, that we'd never compromise with the world. When you chasten us, that we'd receive it from someone who loves us. If you tell us to not go somewhere, that we'd not go. If you tell us to go somewhere, we'd go there and there alone. Lord, in our lives spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, Lord, we surrender to your care for us. Lord, we know that whatever you tell us to do, you'll also give us the strength to accomplish it. And so, God, we thank you that even in the face of our weaknesses, our faults, our failures, even here as in Jacob's life, this time of backsliding, Lord, you're still good. You still love us. You still have a plan for us. And so help our journeys down those roads that are detours to be very short. Lord, we figure it out quickly and return to the right road, to the right path that you lead and guide and direct us. Help us to walk with you closely and dwell where you want us to dwell. In Jesus' name, amen.